Come on, let's go. By shortwave broadcast, direct from important overseas capitals, we are about to broadcast this moment in our history. Hello, and welcome to the History Workshop podcast. Today, Aditya Ramesh is in conversation with Dr. Kim Wagner on the subject of the British Empire and violence. Kim is a senior lecturer in history at Queen Mary University of London and the author of Amritsar 1919, An Empire of Fear and the Making of a Massacre. The book has just been published by Yale University Press. So let me start with where it began for you, Kim, which is your old work on thuggy banditry and violence. Tell us a little bit on what motivated you to work on the subject of violence. I think it was a sort of um, childhood fascination. I was brought up on a solid diet of uh, English boys novels and sort of Kipling-esque stuff, uh, which I then just continued doing and turned into a PhD. Um, and then I happened, after my PhD, I happened to uh, become involved in a research project at Edinburgh on 1857. And of course, in hindsight, I can see there is a red thread running through it, but you know, as you are progressing through your academic career, it seems around more half assets. Uh, but I think sort of I started out with the notion of colonial knowledge in the context of Tagi, uh, which then became colonial um, anxieties in the context of 1857. And now that I'm working on uh, the Amrita massacre, it's, it's colonial violence. But looking back, they're, they're all connected in ways that uh, I've sort of tried to unpack. Okay, so let's talk about these connections a little bit. And let's come to your recent work on the Amritsar Massacre. You have a new book out on the Amritsar Massacre on the eve of the centenary celebration of the Jallianwala Bagh Massacre. What is the book about? The book is an attempt at, um, at the most basic level, describing what happened, but in at the sort of absolute most minute level in terms of details so days individual days take up entire chapters and uh, the 13th of april takes up two chapters so i've really tried to originally i thought it would be do sort of a global history of of mm -hmm. the amrita massacre but uh, as i started uh, writing i, I realized there's so many misconceptions and there's so many facets and nuances that are left out that i actually ended up zooming in rather than zooming out and so it is in a very basic sense just about the month of April at Amritsa and it, and it really has um, the city of Amritsa at its at its core I tried to um, almost in a sense make make the city itself a protagonist in the study okay that's interesting so I've been trying to follow some of your work on both the book, but also some of the academic articles that you wrote before the book. And some of them suggest that you were really exploring in this month the logic of colonial violence. And this was the pinnacle of that violence rather than a start of a process of imperial dissolution, if you will. So can you just tell us why you think that this was the logical end to an extremely violent empire and why 1919 was the apostasy of, of this kind of violence? 
So one of the things that's striking when you look at the quite copious literature on uh, the Amritsar massacre is that it, 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 it doesn't go back to the 19th century. It takes the First World War, it takes the sort of Wilsonian moment as its point of reference. And indeed, most studies of decolonization, of counterinsurgency, they start in 1918. Um, and also, you know, Martin Thomas has a book on colonial, he's got many books on colonial violence, but he's got one uh, and it starts in 1918, Sh uh, Taylor Sherman's work mm. on violence in, in, in India, both British and independent India, starts in 1919. So Amritsa is often taken as a starting point. And to me, having already written about 1857, um, it just seemed that sort of things had been turned upside down and really there are far greater continuities between the 19th century and what then happens during the first two decades of the 20th century. And I, and I think rather than imagining that everything is changed because of the First World War, the sort of dislocation, dissolution of empires, uh, trauma, all these kind of things, which, which loom so large within a Western historiography or Eurocentric historiography, if you want, uh, I think it, it's, it makes far more sense to, to look at what happens in April 1919 through the lens of a sort of long durée that, that takes as its point of reference 1857. So if, if, it, if it begins maybe at 1857 and some of your earlier work suggests that, and there are people now who've done work that suggests that there was a logic to imperial violence even before that, it's interesting then that amongst the British ruling classes for the longest time, not just now, even during the time of empire, that there was a solid belief that European British Empire was far more benevolent as compared to most most European empires, and you can think of King Leopold. You can think of a lot of lot of really um, extremely violent imperial forces. But you write in one article, for instance, that slaughter was in fact the British way in theory and in practice. Why? Why? Why both in responding to this kind of claim that it was a benevolent empire, but also what was the logic of the, of the mind? What was the logic of the British official in carrying out such acts? So that, that particular sentence is a response to military history, which I, I use, usually am quite disparaging about. Um, and often you'll find the Amritsar massacre is sort of the bone you throw, sort of a token bone you throw to liberals and say, yes, yeah, sure, there were unfortunate episode within the British Empire. Uh, by and large, you can't get away with defending the Amritsar massacre. So it, it is an indefensible uh, moment of colonial violence and therefore even uh, those of a more nostalgic persuasion will admit that. Um, and the same thing goes for uh, Bloody Sunday or Mau Mau. But again, they're, all, they're, they're episodic. That's how they're perceived and therefore explain their way. So you have you can maintain a narrative of a, the British Empire as a force for good in the world and that you have those particular moments of, of you know, excess of rogue officers or maybe it's local auxiliaries or settlers, but it's never the empire as such that, that, is, that is behind um, the violence. And so you can maintain the, the, the moral higher ground uh, while still acknowledging there were these 
in inverted commas, unfortunate episodes. Um, and for me, I mean, that's just blatantly uh, incorrect. Uh, and you, when you look at uh, from 1857 to 1919, which just happens to be the period I focused on, but it certainly goes beyond that. There is a remarkable co consistency in the way that British officers involved in the suppression of unrest or rebellions, they rationalize. Mm. Uh, and really, and that's why I talk so much about 1857, 1857 is a blueprint. It really shows that the, the British are just a handful surrounded by natives and in inverted commas uh, and unless they strike out hard uh, they will be overrun uh, and so there are sort of a few principles of this particular sort of colonial mindset or colonial logic uh, of violence uh, which is pr obviously predicated on racialized otherness um, any grievances are illegitimate mm -hmm. so the British, of course, I'm being sarcastic here, the defenders of the masses, you know, Michael O'Dwyer thought of himself as speaking for the Indian peasants. Same thing in 1857. The idea is the sepoys, by and large, had, had nothing to complain about. But because Indians are superstitious or, you know, subject to caste and other biases, they're easily manipulated by either religious leaders, fanatics or political agitators. And therefore, you don't have to take any protests or complaints seriously because really at the heart of it, there is some kind of indigenous conspiracy. Mm. And if you get to the root of that, you can maintain uh, colonial power. You can, you can sort of suppress the unrest. N never by actually dealing with the root cause because there is no root cause other than those ringleaders. Yeah. Or whatever they are and so the logic is that you take out you cut off the, the head of the snake mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, everything will be fine you can't reason with natives asians orientals savages the whole plethora because they don't have any uh, legitimate grievances there's also no room for negotiation and then you get the most sort of pernicious aspect of it which is that the only language they really understand when they're riled up, when they're running amok, is violence yeah. and brute force. And so you get this, this um, it's almost sort of a textbook, you know, rule is this uh, use of exemplary force, yeah. striking hard uh, to, to, to nip unrest in the bud before it turns yeah. into a wider yeah. uprising. And that's why 1857 is so crucial because that provides the nightmare scenario. Mm -hmm. That shows what happens yeah. when you don't strike hard and don't do that uh, sooner rather than later. Yeah. I mean, so that's interesting. You traced three things. You said rule of colonial difference. You said they can't understand reason and that they only understand brute force. The other only understands brute force. But there's another side to some of your writings that you explore, which is that there's a lot of fear and anxiety within the British mind itself. So while they're unable to reason with the other and while they want to dominate the other, do you think it's 1857 or do you think that there's an even longer shadow of anxiety, fear that dominates the, the British Empire? And could you tell us a little bit about why this is important to understand and study? 
So the notion of, of anxieties of, of empire uh, has, has long been sort of recognized by particular literary uh, scholars and within sort of more culturally focused uh, scholarship uh, and stems from the basic condition of colonialism that the Western colonizers are a minority far away from home, surrounded by a hostile climate, um, often hostile natives as well. Um, and and so there is, it, 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 I think it's just a basic, you know, fact about the colonial condition that there's always this uncertainty uh, and sense of insecurity. Now, why that becomes important is because that is what is at the heart of what I take to be British misreading mm. of local unrest, mm. of what stirs the Indian population. Um, and when you have 1857 at the back of your mind, it's, it, I mean, it, it predates 1857 in many ways, uh, but I just think it's, it's, it's notable how often people will refer to 1857 or the mutiny in inverted commas as this kind of, it happened once and it can happen again if we are not uh, vigilant. But it doesn't stem from a, a, um, a deep and profound understanding of local culture or indeed local politics. Mm -hmm. It comes from this reading the present, uh, but always with this, this sort of nightmare scenario at the back of your mind. So even low-level peaceful protests mm. are always perceived as having the potential to escalate okay. which is why British responses to almost any kind of unrest appear to us as being disproportionate yeah. and overreactions yeah. and so that's where the you know no, colonial knowledge when colonial knowledge is actually colonial panic you then have a colonial response which is is uh, characterized by this sort of excessive types of violence, yeah. which is even when it's when it's um, aggressive or offensive, um, it's perceived as being defensive. Yeah. I mean, General Dyer yeah. at Jalan Wallabag, yeah. he thought he was saving yeah. this the, the the European civil population right. of Amritsar and Punjab more generally. Okay. Okay. okay so, from what you've told me so far, you appear to be. A stringent critique, critique of critic of empire, and I think that's what I would take you for. However, recently there's been lots of talk on social media on this subject, and I think you've developed a specific way to understand and and criticize empire, but at the same time historicizing it. Um, and I'm thinking here specifically of two ends of the argument. Right, so there's a project that's on with Nigel Picker, which is on the ethics of empire, which is trying to look at empire as not all bad. There were good things that happened in empire. Right? Um, and the, on the other hand, there's an Indian politician, Sashi Tharoor, whose book has sold, don't even know how many copies, let's just say a lot more copies than, than most history books sell. Um, but this is a version that suggests that India has been completely looted and, and ravished by empire. Can you tell us why perhaps both these versions are not, not just incorrect, but not the best ways of understanding and studying history? Why would you say that? 
So it's interesting you, you say I'm a critic of empire because I, I don't think of myself as that. Because one of the key misunderstandings or misconceptions uh, is the conflation between a critique of empire and a critical approach to empire. Mm-hmm. And, and a critique of empire is, is I mean, I've, I've compared it to shouting at the TV. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't really see any benefit mm-hmm. in that, uh, which is why I've never argued that the British Empire was bad. Mm-hmm. I don't actually say that the Emirates massacre was bad because that's a deeply subjective judgment, uh, which um, you don't need to study anything. You don't need to go to the archive to conclude mm-hmm. that something is bad or good. So, so that very judgment actually comes from a point of ignorance. Mm-hmm. And that's why you, you mentioned Bigger and, and Tarur, neither of whom are historians. Um, and I think the balance sheet approach, which is almost sort of a knee-jerk response, when people in Britain, they hear people say anything about the American massacre or whatever it might be, well, well it wasn't all bad. Presuming that, and that's something I only just realized the other day, studying the violence of empire is perceived as anti-imperialist, when in fact it's just studying an aspect of the empire. I'm I'm not by any uh, means suggesting that uh, the British Empire in India or elsewhere was all about massacres Mm. and beating servants to death all the time. Mm. That's obviously not the case. It happens to be what I'm working on. Um, but also there's no sort of political slant mm. to looking at violence. But it's perceived that way because, and, and this brings us back to Nigel Bigger's project, it's really about uh, identity and emotions. It's about people uh, in Britain today, and, and you see it in all European former uh, imperialist or, or colonial states, um, are deeply uncomfortable with this sort of historical reassessment, but also just the changing power dynamics of the modern world. Mm. And so you have this, um, when, when people say, you know, these massacres happened or racism or something like that, people see it as personal attacks yeah. on things that they hold dear of a particular historical narrative which is constitutive to who they are. So you're not just saying, oh, you know, there were a lot of violence in the British Empire. What you're actually telling individuals here and now is that all the values, all the things that you identify with are actually more problematic. And nobody likes to be told that uh, they're wrong or that their self-perception is based on mythology. Of course, you find that in almost any context. And I think... To some extent, you can say the same thing about Shashi Tarua's project, because at the heart of it, it's in the title of his book, which is what the British did to India, which almost makes me think of sort of a therapist talking to an abused child, pointing to a doll, you know, show me where the bad man touched you. And it's such a oversimplistic notion, you know, that British did something bad to India, but it also takes away any kind of responsibility and everything that's bad in India today, or problematic, you can blame it on the British. And of course, it's deeply empowering today to feel that, you know, Britain, our former overlords, actually owe us. And this is where the apology comes in. Actually, this is a moral debt here, and that we are the aggrieved party. 
Um, and, and it's not just about sort of um, politicized interpretations or approaches to the past. The real problem with the balance sheet is that it stands in the way of a, a deeper and more profound understanding mm. of history. Mm. Because if you operate with a good, bad, pride, shame yeah. framework, you can't unpick yeah. the nuances. You can't see the complexities of how it is perfectly possible to, on the one hand, um, have non-white friends, but at the same time carry out racialized violence. Yeah. Like you know, yeah. and, and, and there are, of course, lots of colonized people who collaborated yeah. with European um, colonial powers. There's no way around that. Which is exactly why we can't say these things are good, these things are bad, in this very uh, sort of ahistorical and, and strangely moralizing way. So let me just push you a little bit on that point. So if, for instance, we assign your article on Amritsar, which you've written in past and present, in a history syllabus, you've argued in that article that the logic of violence underpinned a lot of imperial strategy. That And this logic was not an aberration, but it was written into the fabric of empire. Now, if a whole set of 18-year-olds are reading that article, do you think then that there's any there's a neutrality to to that article even in your even in your own work even though you're able to historicize it is it possible then to politically say that i'm not taking a balance sheet approach here but i'm doing doing something else so do you think when 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 even your work goes out into the public um, it takes a life of its own which then is is soon into this narrative in a way I, I don't know. <laughs> no, I, I think you're probably right. And I know I'm certainly perceived as being, um, I've been described as a hysterical lefty and being ideologically driven. Uh, but I mean, I, I don't know what to say to that because what I'm pointing out, you, you can disagree with my mm -hmm. interpretation, but I'm presenting a historical uh, argument. Um, and I think I, I wouldn't, some, anybody uh, who wrote about education or railways I wouldn't say that that was a necessarily a piece of pro-empire mm -hmm. scholarship um, so I, I, I think it's more about the perception that if you point out things that don't fit into mm. this uh, conventional narrative then you are somehow pushing a political yeah. point yeah. Uh, and I would strongly disagree with that but of course, I can't control how my yeah. stuff is read, uh, read, read yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. So just, just on that point then, would you argue that in, in India today, a lot of the narrative around empire then is used as an easy escape in a way? Um, instead, if even if we're look, looking at the subject of violence, before the British arrived, after the British left, upper caste violence on Dalits has been routinized um, through different kinds of mechanisms. Did you come across any of this in, in your own work during the colonial period? I can't say I did. Um, what I would say about the perception of, of British rule in India today is that it is thoroughly, thoroughly politicized. Um, 
to the point that I am being described as an apologist of empire because I refuse to call General Dyer a villain and because I talk about 1857. That any attempt, I'm just speaking from my own perspective and experience, any attempt to understand what happened beyond these rather simplistic binaries is somehow perceived as justifying violence. And that's, of course, Mm. something I've thought about myself Mm. because my book about Amritsa is trying to uh, in a sense, put myself in, in you know a pair of rather uncomfortable shoes yeah. and say, you know, is it possible to actually understand why people did what they did? Uh, and I absolutely insist that that is what we have to do as historians. And, you know, when I try to explain what what my aim is, it's basically to try to make sense of what appears to be senseless violence. Yeah, and. Um, we try to understand why serial killers do what they do. I think we should try to understand uh, all historical uh, actors, regardless of, of who they are. So if in, if in India it's it's extremely politicized, it's no less politicized, I guess, in this country, in, in the UK. And if we're just going to talk a little bit about our own tribe now, has this method that you're advocating of trying to... Un- and, have, and you've taught imperial history now, from assuming quite a while, right? 10, 10 15 years, possibly. <laughs> Sadly, yes. Uh, so, has it? Have, have you found attitudes changing in these last 10, 15 years? Have you found people responding to the question of empire differently? Are they able to appreciate violence not necessarily as the only char- characteristic of empire, but a foundational... The nuances that you argue for, are people able to appreciate them? Have they found purchase and currency? I think so, especially if we're talking about global history or imperial history, colonial history. Uh, I think something like um, the work of Caroline Elkins and David Anderson really pushed uh, that and also beyond academia and into the mainstream. Uh, you could almost say in some certain quarters it's been pushed too far to the point where you do find uh, a, a ready... Um, audience for Shashi Tarua's argument and there I mean there's one Twitter uh, account called Crimes of Britain which right. is just a, a long list of historically inaccurate facts about all the horrors the British did which as, as far as I'm concerned is, is as um, simplistic and, and problematic mm-hmm. as a, a list of all the you know the blessings of Western civilization that we bestowed upon the poor benighted heathens um, but yeah, still, I mean, there's still something like military history is, is, is an area where I always assumed I would have a lot of, um, there'd be a lot of overlap since, you know, there's lots of there's significant uh, number of, of, of military historians who work on counterinsurgency and mm-hmm. colonial warfare. But that's one instance where I think we actually have these sort of disciplinary uh, boundaries and um, something that I'm still working on, um, for better or worse. Between military historians and historians of empire, you mean? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Okay, so there is a kind of boundary there between the two, you'd say? Oh, yeah. Um, which you would think that we had a lot in common. But at the end of the day, uh, you know, when you ask different questions, mm-hmm. even of the same historical archival mm-hmm. material, you end up with very different answers. Um, 
But at the same time, I also see some some movement in what used to be extremely conservative and parochial mm. areas. Right. Yeah. Okay, let's take a short break. Uh, let's do a kind of BuzzFeed list. Um, if you were going to recommend five books for everyone to read on Empire and Imperial Logic, and let's stick to the British Empire if possible. If not, then that's fine. Um, just any five books. So, um, I'm not sure, I, I, I'll do articles as well. Um, I, I really like to teach using novels and movies as well. And uh, my students may disagree, but I still think uh, Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness and Orwell's Burmese Days are, are brilliant explorations of Western imperialism, uh, violence, colonial mindset, any number of things that you can tease out. These are, of course, by no means unproblematic texts but, and should be indeed seen as, as historical artifacts in their own right. Um, I also like to pair, and this might sound a bit um, sadistic, uh, but Edward Said's Orientalism uh, and Niall Ferguson's How Britain Made the Modern World, um, which I find... Good for a debate. Exactly. Um, and, and I have a lot of issues with Orientalism, but at the same time, when, you, when you're talking about teaching, I, I, I think it's indispensable. Um, Ranajit Guha's Prose of Counterinsurgency uh, is, is a key text as far as I'm concerned, and by far superior to elementary aspects of peasant insurgency, uh, interestingly. That is a fantastic Absolutely fantastic. It was foundational to me as well. Mm. Um, and Stolers in Cold Blood was one of the first... I mean, it's not an easy read, uh, but that's one of the texts which sort of really opened my eyes to uh, how looking at colonial anxieties actually offers a completely different entry point to looking at imperialism, but also colonial violence more generally. Uh, and I, there's a lot of anthropology that's extremely has been extremely influential to me Michael Tausig uh, Vina Das you, yeah. you, you name it um, and then finally uh, my good friend Mike Van he's just brought out a uh, comic book from Oxford University Press on the great rat massacre of the great Hanoi rat massacre oh, okay. um, and he's a brilliant scholar but I also really like the idea of, of serious historical scholarship uh, in, in, in comic book form uh, and I can really warmly recommend that. I, 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 have, I have yet to try teaching with right. it, yeah. but that's something I, I'm looking forward to doing. So you're going to write a film script anytime soon? I'm working on one right now. <laughs> Are you? But it's okay. kind of procrastination. <laughs> but that's sort of... Okay. We, all, we all need some kind of uh, side project that will yeah. never go anywhere, but that keeps us busy. Keeps you busy. Yeah, and keeps you alive. Um, Okay, so we'll move into the final segment. So the final segment, I want to talk a little bit about decolonization. Um, there's been a big movement across the UK, which we've been tracking quite closely at HWO. And some of that has originated at Queen Mary. And decolonization implies many things, but immediately the term implies let's get rid of colonialism. Let's move away from a colonial way of seeing things politically in the 1940s and 50s. But it's a strange moment in the, in the UK where the term is being applied to 
syllabi and history syllabi and social science syllabi humanity syllabi how do you think this intersects with debates on empire does it intersect with debates on empire yeah i mean it's i actually i drafted a decolonization manifesto along with two colleagues uh, which was immediately shut down by other colleagues um because i think uh the decolonization movement is absolutely crucial and essential to the continuing development of humanities but i also think the very terminology itself is uh in many instances unhelpful and i can now tell from own ex- from personal experience it's also alienating um and so it's it's a very powerful rallying point uh but i think there we have to be careful about how we actually translate effective slogans into actionable mm. politics um of course you don't want to water it down and saying well you know we should always you know diversity is a great mm-hmm. thing and these yeah. kind of things but um i think i think it's worth thinking more critically about the work that decolonization does for better or worse yeah. in that respect so within departments themselves to try and for instance some of the texts that you were suggesting and stoller's texts ranaji kuha's texts they should ideally be present on on most syllabi and people would argue that that is actually a way of decolonizing the ways in which most history departments teach empire or imperialism but you think pushing that as a project of decolonization might not be the best way of going about it um no I, I, that's a very concrete suggestion uh, and i think people can relate to that far more easily mm. but the moment you call it decolonization mm. people uh get confused defensive mm. and they think oh now i can't teach you know white male authors mm. anymore which is of course a, a bunch of bs but that is i, th- I think we have to be realistic yeah. without compromising yeah. Uh, and and that's why i think in, in some instances it's far um it's far easier to to talk about concrete things without necessarily using the label of decolonizing or decolonization okay that's a good strategy for moving forward and we close the podcast now thank you very much kim thank you very much thank you kim for being with us i'd also like to thank the editor of this podcast mary beth hamilton please visit our website www.historyworkshop.org.uk you can find us on twitter at historywo and on facebook and instagram as history workshop this is the history workshop podcast i'm aditya ramesh and thanks for listening